You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, with your word open before us, we ask now that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ might be exalted and lifted up. Amen. In the Gospel of Mark, we reach a turning point. When Jesus travels to Caesarea Philippi, it's the most northern region that he travels to outside of Jerusalem. He's on the edge of Israel and the world. He poses questions to the disciples. Before he goes to Caesarea Philippi, he heals a blind man in Bethsaida, Bethsaida being about 25 miles from the region in Caesarea Philippi. And it wasn't until preparing for this sermon that I saw the connection between the miracle and the message, between his conversation with the disciples. And I think that that uh, connection was very much in the mind of, of Mark. Sometimes I feel sorry for us moderns living in the post-enlightenment, late modern age, where every miracle is suspect. Like, you don't mean that that really happened, do you? Well, I do mean, and I think the gospel means, that this really did happen. That Jesus encountered this blind man in this village, and he takes the blind man by the hand and leads him outside of the village. And then he spit on the man's eyes and he put his hands on him. And Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. I think it is a choice of worldviews. Do we live in an impersonal, materialistic age where we are the subject of random forces, that there is no personal creator God, there is no redeemer, there is no such thing as crucifixion and resurrection or incarnation? But if you do believe that you are in the image of God, if you do believe that God redeems, if you do believe in the power of the incarnate one who was crucified for our sins and raised a newness of life, if you do believe that, the miracles make great sense, don't they? There was a process in this healing. He's led outside of the village by hand, and then he's touched, and his eyesight is partially restored. He goes from blindness to imperfect sight to plain clear sight. And that's the process that the disciples will experience with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. Because Jesus will lead them through a process of understanding. They will go from non-understanding to misunderstanding to understanding. 
And it begins with Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? And I think it's a setup question in one sense, because he's going to compare and contrast. It's going to be followed up with, well, who do you say that I am? The disciples' initial response to the first question is, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah, one of the prophets. A highly complimentary response on the part of the people. But then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? In Matthew, Peter's response is fuller. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to Peter is, in the text, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood is not revealed to this to you, but my Father in heaven. But here, Mark, kind of typical of his tagline gospel, simply says that, Peter, you are the Messiah. And Jesus immediately warns them not to tell anybody. Just like with the blind man, he told him, don't go back in the village. Now, why? And I think this is why the lectionary reading includes, includes James and why we're told, don't be so eager to teach. Because the disciples were not ready to bear witness to Jesus Christ because they didn't understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah. They had not drawn the connection between Isaiah's suffering servant and Jesus. They had not drawn the connection between Abel's sacrificial lamb and Jesus. They had not drawn the connection between Moses' Passover lamb and the Exodus and Jesus. And made that connection. They expected a political Messiah. They expected an ethnic redemption. They expected an Israel first restoration. That's what they're anticipating. And this is why Jesus warned them not to tell anybody else. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. But this was a shock to them. This is not the kind of Messiah that they anticipated. Sidney Alstrom's book, The Undaunted Courage, describing the expedition of Lewis and Clark, has this one scene that resonates in my mind with this uh, turning point. They had been traveling now up the Mississippi, across the Missouri, they've gotten to Lemmy Pass, which is on the border of uh, Montana and Idaho. When they got over that ridge, they expected to see the Columbia River and an easy portage. All the maps put the Columbia River close to those uh, headwaters of the Missouri and that they only needed a short portage of their canoes to get there. They could canoe to the Pacific Ocean. But when Lewis climbed that pass and overlooked, and what did he see? But he saw the Rocky Mountains. He saw ridges and ra ranges of mountains, and they were snow-capped, and it was August. And he must, in that moment, 
have realized this is not going to be an easy journey. What they anticipated, and one historian called it the geography of hope, gave way to the geography of reality. There is a difference between admirers of Jesus and followers of Jesus. And in this passage with the two questions, Jesus takes the disciples from admiration to discipleship, to what it meant to follow him. Peter didn't get it. He rebuked Jesus for talking this way. He saw it as antithetical to everything that the Messiah stood for. And Jesus rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus calls the crowd to him, along with the disciples. And I find this just spatially and relationally interesting. One, we sort of thought that they were alone with Jesus, but there's a crowd to be called. And he says this, as it were, publicly, as if going on the record. He calls the crowd to him along with the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what does it mean? For us, personally and practically, to take up a cross and to follow Jesus, does it not mean that we really do believe that we are image bearers of God and that we see people not as the world sees, but we see people as God sees them, people for whom Christ died, This is a radical reorientation of of how we see the other, how we see people. Does this not believe that, this causes us to believe if we're under this cross-bearing reality that we really do need redemption, that the light has shined and the darkness has not overcome it. And this light is the light of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. And in a way, we bear the disgrace of that in a culture that would no longer accept that or receive that. And yet we also know within our heart and within our mind that there is a residency in the mind of all people, as secular as they may be, of this need. And that only God can convince. And we are invited to witness under that cross to this redemption. If we bear this cross, don't we also agree with Jesus' commands, with God's commandments, that they are as definite to us as biological laws? as the physics laws of gravity, that what is outlined in terms of God first 
and the rhythms of grace, that all of that is part of what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus. When Paul said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, when he said that to the church at Corinth, he proceeded then to take the cross and plant it in every issue confronting the church. Everything from sexual immorality to eating meat offered to idols to worship form to speaking in tongues, everything is then applied in some way to the fact that Christ has been crucified for us and has been made alive through the resurrection. So there's a two-pronged understanding of the cross here. One, we accept the doctrine of the cross, that Christ indeed died for us. We affirm that every time we take the bread, we drink the cup, that our lives depend upon that life-giving shed blood on our behalf to redeem us. But the second part of that prong is that we live into this reality, bearing witness to it. Some of you may have seen the article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was yesterday, about Todd Beamer. Todd Beamer was a 32-year-old software salesman on Flight 93 that was destined by the hijackers on 9-11 to fly into the Capitol building. And Todd called on the airphone and talked for 14 minutes describing to the operator what the, hostage, uh, what the hijackers had said and what they were threatening. And he describes the situation to her and he lets her know that four of them are going to try to rush the cockpit to throw this uh, trajectory of the plane off. Todd is a graduate from Wheaton College and uh, was a Sunday school teacher at Princeton Alliance Church in New Jersey. His life was characterized by faith and rhythms of grace and involvement as a father, a young father. I think that's what cross-bearing means. I don't mean to pull his example now as some kind of heroic example of it, but the reason he had the courage and the confidence and the assurance to do what he did on 9-11, on Flight 93, was because of his faith and trust in the Lord. And that's not to say that there weren't others that participated that did not have that faith. But the courage he manifested grew out of, as Lisa's wife would say, out of his firm and deep conviction with the Lord. Todd finished that phone call by asking the operator to pray with him. And they prayed the Lord's Prayer, and then he finished by praying Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Ordinary life marked by the cross. A church that preaches the cross also needs to be marked by the cross. Lives that bend the knee and eat the bread and drink the cup are lives also that at work, at home, 
in all of life are characterized by bearing the cross of Jesus Christ and planting that cross in every relationship, every concern, every priority. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.